we have as chairman of this session uh, Dr. John Iskander. Dr. John Iskander is the chair of the Department of State's Foreign Service Institute uh, Center for Country and Area Studies. And so da daily he works with these issues and how Americans being trained to be sent to the region, both as intelligence analysts, desk officers, those who are forward deployed and mobilized uh, to enhance American national security, economic, strategic, commercial, and political interest. So please welcome John Iskander. Hello, good morning, welcome to the next panel. Um, my name is John Iskander, as Dr. Anthony said, and I am at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute where I chair Near East North Africa Area Studies. Uh, delighted to be here today with this illustrious crowd. Uh, we're going to be addressing, obviously, the uh, issues related to Iran, uh, as all of you know, uh, those of you who follow these issues, as everybody here does, uh, that there are lots of concerns from all sides. Uh, we'll be addressing some of those today and looking forward to a lively discussion on the topic as we always do uh, with, with such a topic. Uh, we're going to be starting off with, uh, with our, our sets of, uh, of speakers. Uh, we'll wrap up with a discussion of the various sessions, of the various speakers, uh, and then we'll open up to question and answer. Uh, as always, uh, if you have questions, please pass them, please write them down and pass them forward. We're going to be starting first with Dr. Flint Leverett. I'll introduce each of our speakers uh, as they go. Uh, Dr. Leverett is director of the Iran Initiative, senior research fellow and director of American Strategy Program, director of geopolitics and energy initiative at the New America Foundation. Um, he's clearly led, he has a, a very long and distinguished career. He's one of those, as all of our speakers are today, who needs very little by way of introduction, uh, but distinguished career in the U.S. government, serving as Senior Director for Middle East Affairs at, at the NSC, uh, Middle East expert on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, and much more. Uh, he's published extensively on issues of concern, including on Syria as well as on Iran. Uh, thank you very much, and I turn it over to Dr. Flint Leverett. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, pleasure to be with you this morning. I thought to start off this, this panel, this session, that I would say some things about two questions that I think really shape our discussions about Iran and or some our concerns about Iran. Those two sets of questions are First of all, um, is Iran really becoming a more strategically consequential and influential actor in the region? Um, I believe it is. Um, and so I'd like to say a few things about why I believe that is the case. And then secondly, of course, there's a set of concerns about Iran as a potential flashpoint for military conflict in the region. So I'd like to make a few observations about that as, as well. 
it seems to me at least pretty clear that over the last 10 years roughly, Iran's strategic influence in the Gulf and across the Middle East as a whole has risen very significantly. Why is that the case? I would argue that it has very little, if anything, to do with hard power, hard military power. Iran, to this day, remains incapable of projecting substantial amounts of conventional military power beyond its borders. That is reality. Okay. Why has Iran become more influential over the last decade? One factor that I think is undeniable is a series of quite serious policy mistakes by the United States. First of all, just from a balance of power point of view, once the United States, through its military, eliminated or pushed out of power in Kabul, the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, and once we had overthrown Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the balance of power in a regional context could only improve from an Iranian perspective. That's a given. But beyond that, I think that our prolonged and in many ways, I'll be generous here, less than fully competent occupations in both Afghanistan and Iraq have played powerfully to Iran's advantage. Secondly, the United States has I think come very close over the last 10 years to presiding over the death of the traditional Arab-Israeli peace process. And in saying that, I don't just mean that the United States has tanked on any meaningful diplomatic leadership on this issue, but that it has increasingly embraced a notion that Israel's security requires something tantamount to Israeli military hegemony in the region. So that Israeli security rests upon Israel's confidence that it can use military force unilaterally anywhere, anytime it wants for whatever purpose it considers desirable. And the US has, to all intents and purposes, bought off on that notion of what Israel's security requires. That, too, has played powerfully to Iran's advantage. Third, you've seen an enormous deterioration in America's international economic position over the last decade. There is, of course, a regional component to this because of the very, very substantial increases in energy prices that the world has seen um, since the beginning of this decade. You can see, as the oil price goes up, the current account surpluses of major energy exporters go up, and the current account deficit of the United States also grows.
What is so striking, though, is that other major energy importing economies in the world, China, Japan, Germany, they're all paying the same higher prices for energy that the United States has been paying, but they have managed to grow their own current account surpluses during this period, while for the United States, the current account deficit has just kept getting bigger and bigger. That too, I think, has contributed to an impression of declining American power and has played powerfully to Iran's advantage. But Iran, of course, has taken advantage of these developments to boost its own strategic standing in the Middle East. The, con the, the assessment of Iranian soft power is complicated, but I think that Iranian soft power is real and I think it is effectively undiminished. And I think fundamentally Iranian soft power is rooted in a basic reality, namely that in key regional theaters in the Middle East, the Iranians have picked winners rather than losers as their political allies. In Lebanon, over the last 10 years, there has been a huge, huge rise in Hezbollah's standing, not just as an effective paramilitary force, but as the most disciplined, most effective, and in some ways most genuinely popular political party in Lebanon. If you look at the actual vote tallies for the 2009 elections in Lebanon, the March 8 coalition, the Hezbollah coalition, actually won quite a few more votes than the March 8 coalition, uh, March 14 coalition, excuse me. But because the Lebanese political system systematically underweights Shia votes, the March 8, the March uh, 14 coalition won more seats. But in terms of popular support and in terms of strategic influence in Lebanese politics, Iran has picked a winner in Hezbollah. In Palestine, we have seen Hamas over the last 10 years emerge as a genuinely popular political party, not just a paramilitary force. In the case of both Hezbollah and Hamas, these, these movements have grown as political forces that win elections because they represent unavoidable constituencies with legitimate grievances. And Iran has picked winners for its allies. In Iraq, Shia Islamist parties, movements, militias that Iran supported during the Saddam period for years, for decades, have emerged as the most important players in post-Saddam Iraqi politics. Once again, Iran has picked winners, not losers, for its political allies.
This is not about hard power. It's about smart politics. Right. Now, let me say something very briefly about risk of military confrontation. The only way a military confrontation involving Iran is going to come about over the next year, over the next two years, perhaps even longer than that, is if the United States and or Israel initiates it. And if either the United States or Israel initiates that confrontation, it is going to be because Iran is enriching uranium. There will not be a smoking gun that Iran is actually trying to fabricate a nuclear weapon. There will be continued development of Iran's capabilities to enrich uranium. There will not be a reported diversion of nuclear materials. There will simply be continued development of Iran's fuel cycle capabilities. And I would just leave you with this thought, given what I've said about political trends in the region and Iran's ability to exploit them, what do you think the regional reaction is going to be if Iran is attacked by the United States or Israel because it is enriching uranium? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Leverett. Our next session, will, our next uh, speaker will be uh, Mr. Tom Dallaire. Uh, he's the uh, Director of Terrorism, Finance, and Sanctions Policy in the Economic Bureau of the Department of State and has been since September of 2009. Um, an illustrious career within government also, uh, having served at the U.S. Embassy in Rome as Minister Counselor for Economic Affairs. Uh, prior to that, Minister Counselor for Economic Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, as well as Deputy Chief of Mission and Chargé in Bucharest, Romania. Uh, many other assignments, uh, as well as having worked as an analyst in the Library of Congress at an earlier point in his career. Thank you very much, and please join me in welcoming Mr. Tom Dallaire. Thank you, John. And uh, thank you also, Dr. Anthony, for uh, your kind invitation to say a few words today about Iran sanctions policy. I work in the Economic Bureau of the Department of State, which has the operational duty to apply um, the non-financial aspects of the Iranian, of Iranian sanctions. Given, given this audience's uh, interest, I assume most of you are aware of the general shape of our sanctions policy, its goals, its tools, but I will touch on a few of the especially newer elements. Um, but I also assume that you are probably less aware of where we are in the application of the new sanctions regime, the Comprehensive Iranian Sanctions and Divestment Act, which from this moment on I'm going to call Sisada. Sisada, okay? The other one's just too long and hard to pronounce. Um, but yeah, I think you'd like to hear about where we are in its application, uh, perhaps about some recent successes, and very importantly, about some of the consequences, some of which have been perhaps unintended. Let me emphasize that we regard the application of American sanctions against Iran as 
one, just part of a large multilateral effort, and two, it's an all-of-government effort. State and Treasury have primary responsibilities for implementing CISADA, but all of the economic agencies in town, intelligence resources across the city, and even the Department of Defense are engaged in it. CISADA, signed on July the 1st, significantly expands sanctionable energy-related activities. It adds new types of sanctions and imposes strict conditions on the access to the U.S. financial system. But as I mentioned, we see this as part of a multilateral effort. It's one of a cascade of measures that we see having increasing impact on the Iranian government and economy. First, I think we have to mention the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1929, and then subsequent actions taken by the European Union, Canada, Australia, Japan, Korea, and other partners. The EU measures are particularly impressive. They include prohibition on new investment, especially in the energy sector, bans on the transfer of key technology, tough measures against Iranian banks and correspondent banking accounts. Well, let's take stock of where we are as we embark on all these new measures. I'll start from what we think is the obvious. A nuclear-armed Iran would severely threaten security and stability of a part of the world crucial to our interests and the health of the global economy. A nuclear-armed Iran would undermine credibility of the United Nations and other international institutions and seriously undercut the non-proliferation regime at precisely the moment we would like to strengthen it. These risks are reinforced and highlighted by support for terrorist groups provided by the Iranian government, its opposition to the Middle East peace process, its chilling rhetoric about Israel, and its brutal repression of its own citizens. Now, for about two years, this administration has been using a, a mix of tough-minded diplomacy, including both engagement and pressure, and active cooperation with our partners to make clear the choices before the Iranian leadership. I think, as all of you know, last year we embarked on an unprecedented effort to engage Iran. We did so without illusions. Engagement permitted us to test Iranian intentions, while at the same time building stronger partnerships with countries concerned about Iran's behavior. But Iranian intransigence, and we would see that demonstrated with the clandestine enrichment fa uh, facility in Qom, plans for 10 new enrichment facilities, the refusal to continue discussions with the P5 plus one left us no choice but to employ a second tool, economic and political pressure to complement that of diplomacy. Let me talk about a few of our current actions and some early results. Since the passage of CISADA, we are undertaking a vigorous outreach program and we're encouraging other steps to go beyond the Security Council resolution 1929 and at the same time, to avoid undercutting the actions of states that have taken rather robust measures themselves, and importantly, not to backfill behind contracts or projects when countries or firms are leaving the area, not to backfill and take advantage of that economic opportunity. We're reviewing past activity that could trigger sanctions under the Iran Sanctions Act. That's the old act. We have identified a number of cases dating from before the Obama administration, which appeared problematic and warranted more consideration. We've now sanctioned one firm, referred a number of others for continuing investigation, and obtained, this is the important part, obtained definite pledges of termination of investment activities in the Iranian energy sector from others. 
in terms of how, how do we bring about further action, we're informing posts, all of our posts abroad of the new requirements of the U.S. Act. We are encouraging outreach to the local governments, publics and businesses explaining this. We're trying to get, uh, have other peoples join us in complementary actions. You will have all read, of course, of the numerous high-level and working-level visits uh, to critical capitals. For example, to China, Moscow, Gulf capitals, Brussels. These are all armed at securing collaboration and lack of undercutting sometimes. Here in Washington, we have increased and reorganized staff to implement the sanctions. We have established new means to share intelligence. We've found vulnerabilities, particularly conducive to the application of our sanctions. And finally, we worry about unintended consequences. Because as I emphasize that this is a multilateral effort, we realize that the sort of blind application of sanctions can do serious damage to very important, critically important bilateral relationships. So especially in those countries in close proximity to Iran, those with long-standing and large commercial relationships, we're, we are working with those countries to, to avoid entanglement, unintentionally perhaps, in the Iran sanctions. And finally, we're reaching out to commercial and legal interests in the U.S. and abroad to explain the law and solicit their concerns. So it'll take time to gauge the full impact of the law and the other sanctions. But we've, we have observed the following, a profound impact on shipping and insurance services. It's become clear that access to financial services has become much more difficult. The cost of doing business for Iran has been raised. Even the use of complex deceptive practices, while sometimes successful, are becoming more costly and time consuming. Major fuel suppliers, including VTOL, Shell, Reliance, IPG, Glencore, others, will no longer sell their refined products to Iran. And a number of major oil companies have even refused to sell jet fuel to Iran air aircraft, sending a message of isolation to the Iranian regime and elites. So in conclusion, just let me say that the aim of our sanctions, the multilateral sanctions generally, is to bring home to the Iranian government the cost of its policy choices. For the Iranian elites and general public, it also demonstrates the isolation, increasing isolation of the, of the regime. Our end goal is still to produce serious negotiations with the international community and with the P5 plus one on the Iranian nuclear program while increasing the cost and time required for continuation of that effort. How is this going to end? Well, I don't have a crystal ball here. It's a very dynamic process, but I would tick off a few things for you. International pressure is building. The capacity to identify and halt sanction breakers' activity is improving. Regulations to implement the European Union sanctions are just coming online. We expect, we expect a very positive result there. Other states are building on the framework of the Security Council Revolution, uh, Resolution 1929, acting their own complementary measures. We will continue to encourage those. And finally, we will continue to build the capacities of our friends and allies to better track and halt problematic transactions. Bob Einhorn, who's Secretary Clinton's special advisor on sanctions, recently remarked during congressional testimony, said our foremost objective, one shared by our international partners and allies in the region, is a durable diplomatic solution to the world's concerns about the Iranian nuclear program and the broader issues at stake with Iran. The choice to adopt a more constructive course, however, is one that Tehran alone can make. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Mr. Dallaire. Um, as you can see the, the panel unfolding the topic, I think you can see the, the points of, of questions and, and dialogue that, that we're looking forward to, and it's, uh, it's a really rich panel as we continue with it. Uh, we're going to turn next to Dr. Trita Parsi. Um, I was uh, just in, in Saudi Arabia visiting there, and he happened to be passing through at the same time and uh, made a splash, so it was uh, first time to see him back here. Um, we're, uh, Dr. Parsi is uh, the, he's a 2010 recipient of the Gravemeyer Award for Ideas for Improving World Order, founder and president of the National Iranian American Council. Uh, he's a Woodrow Wilson Fellow this year, an expert on U.S.-Iranian relations, Iranian politics, and balance of power in the Middle East. Uh, he's the author of a major book called The Treacherous Alliance, uh, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States. There's much more. Uh, I, I address, uh, ask you to, to look at the bio when you have a chance. Uh, Dr. Trita Parsi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure being here today addressing this important topic, and in our conversations prior to this panel, uh, one of the questions that was posed as a potential topic to address was what is the value of going forward with any diplomacy with Iran at this stage? Mindful of uh, the poor results that have been shown so far, what can be salvaged uh, with a diplomatic strategy? <clears throat> and I thought that I wanted to turn that question around instead and actually see uh, what lessons can be learned from the past year and a half in the diplomatic outreach of the Obama administration in order to make sure that in any future talks, potentially in the upcoming talks if they take place in November, that some of those challenges can be met more effectively. Okay. So we have seen that in the past year and a half, the Obama administration okay. started off trying to create a better atmosphere between the United States and Iran in order to make diplomacy succeed. And much of the administration's chances of success were significantly reduced due to what was happening inside of Iran, which was very much outside of the control of the administration itself. With the disputed elections, massive human rights abuses that took place afterwards, you saw several effects that impacted the administration's chances of success. On the one hand, the outcome of the elections or the fallout of the elections created a political paralysis inside of Iran that made it much more difficult for the political elite to come to terms on very, very important issues for the Iranians, such as how to negotiate with the United States. Furthermore, the difficulty for an American government to negotiate with Iran, which was already difficult as it was, became all the more difficult. The political space for it was reduced even further as a result of the human rights abuses and what was taking place inside the country, and gave a significant boost to the efforts in Congress to go forward with uh, new sanctions that now have been passed, sanctions that incidentally were introduced in Congress even before uh, the Iranian elections and even before the first round of talks. By October, as the talks began then, one of the most important, but probably not the only important reason as to why the talks did not produce any results was precisely the difficulty within the Iranian political elite to come to a consensus on how to deal with this issue. Not necessarily because of wide-ranging differences on the specifics of the deal, but because of significant differences on how the deal's political capital inside of Iran later on would be distributed and who it would benefit and who it wouldn't. Now, given all of that, 
and assuming that there will be some talks, if not in November, sometimes this year or early next year. What are the different things that the administration um, could do perhaps a bit differently or think about in order to make sure that a different result can come about? And obviously, there is a, a very long list of things that the Iranian government probably could do different as well. But due to time limitations, I will only address seven points on what can be addressed here uh, in the United States. First of all, don't turn confidence-building measures into preconditions. In October, the U.S. was very much open to expanding the agenda and addressing other issues. And there's wide-ranging issues of conflict between the United States and Iran. But only after there had been a successful completion of the TRR deal. Consequently, much-needed talks on issues such as Afghanistan, such as Iraq, such as the human rights situation in Iran, never took place due to a failure of a tactical confidence-building measure on the nuclear issue. Success on the TRR became a precondition for addressing any other issue, including other aspects of the nuclear talks. Of course, the administration believed that, any, that a quick diplomatic victory was needed in order to be able to push back against the critics of dialogue in Washington, push back Iran's breakout capability in order to create more space for um, diplomacy. But by putting essentially all eggs into one basket and then that basket not working out as had been hoped for, um, the diplomatic plan A fell apart and there really wasn't much of a diplomatic plan B except going for sanctions. Two, embrace a larger agenda. Reducing 30 years of wide-ranging tensions between the United States and Iran into a single variable negotiation is not a formula for success. Areas of tensions between the US and Iran are not few, and in many ways, expanding it can come across as complicating the issue. Uh, and the Iranians, indeed, have at times tried to expand the, uh, the agenda indefinitely for uh, stalling tactics. Yet it is also through the expansion of the agenda that both leverage and some maneuverability can be found. Success in one area can be used to break deadlocks in another area. Common benefits that can be achieved in Afghanistan can overcome some of the suspicions and bad blood that exists in the nuclear issue. So an expansion and an embracement of the larger agenda, I think, would be more helpful than focusing singularly on the nuclear issue. Three, don't avoid the human rights situation in Iran. I think the administration felt very strongly that if it was more vocal on the human rights situation in Iran, that that would come across as an interference in Iran's uh, political affairs and come across as taking sides with any of the political parties battling it out after the elections. However, the abuses that took place in Iran are unacceptable regardless as to whether who won or who didn't win the elections, regardless as to whether there was any elections or not. And in the long run, for the United States to be able to have a sustainable, productive relationship with Iran, it cannot go back to what many people in the opposition fear which is a re return to the relationships as existed with the Shah, in which security matters tend to trump all other considerations, and that particularly human rights issues would be sacrificed for the sake of getting uh, a nuclear deal. Four, trust is in short supply. So utilize countries that actually can inject some trust into this atmosphere. It is an interesting formula 
of having the United States and the P5 plus one negotiate with Iran. It's obviously a mechanism that cannot be sidelined, but perhaps it can be complemented with other elements because none of the countries in the P5 plus one tend to have a positive relationship with Iran and none of them tend to have much trust in Iran. Iran, in turn, trusts none of the countries in the P5 plus one. It may have a little bit better relationship with some of them, but trust is quite scarce. Under those circumstances, with such a mechanism, expectations of success should be very, very moderate. We have seen earlier this year that there are other countries who are trusted allies of the United States, who also, for their own reasons, have managed to create, if not trust, at least a rapport with the Iranians, and have managed to do something that very few countries in Europe have managed to do, which is to get the Iranians to say yes. Now, clearly, if one is solely focused on a punitive approach towards Iran, then bringing more countries into the equation can be very difficult in order to ensure that everyone is on the same line when it comes to what type of sanctions measures to adopt in Iran. But if there is a seriousness about making diplomacy succeed, then one cannot overlook the necessity of having confidence and trust. And there are countries, some of them in the region, some of them beyond, that can play a role in this. And it seems wise to be able to utilize them for the next round of discussions. Five, don't let the search for leverage come at the expense of the success of the talks. Obviously, searching for leverage prior to any negotiations within any negotiation is always going to be inevitable. But in any successful negotiation, this must be balanced with other considerations, particularly uh, the creation of an atmosphere that is conducive to the success of talks an atmosphere that has at least some modicum of confidence in it. Currently, both sides are seeking to create as many facts on the ground as possible to have maximum leverage in any upcoming talks. The Iranians are advancing their nuclear program and their stockpile of both LEU as well as 20% enriched uranium. And arguably, they are also utilizing two Americans imprisoned Iran as a potential negotiating uh, a bargaining chip. The U.S. in turn, as has been explained on this panel, is very uh, much more effective and has been in the past in adding more pressure on Iran, adding new sanctions and pressuring many of Iran's trading partners to uh, seize its dealings with Iran. And this is done, it is said, to cripple the Iranian economy and gain leverage. But in an atmosphere that is already void of confidence and trust, the extent to which these steps uh, are taken only add to a more hostile atmosphere and increases the risks of the talks being dead on arrival. Both sides may have thought that they have gained much leverage, but unfortunately that leverage may very well have come at the expense of any potential diplomatic breakthrough. Six, talk to everyone in Iran. There's oftentimes in DC a conversation about who can we talk to Iran? Who do we have to go to? Well, <clears throat> perhaps the question has been wrongly formulated in the outset. It's not just who, but essentially more than less everyone. Every potential power circle and element in Iran needs to be addressed. To just take a look at what uh, the Turks and the Brazilians did that seemed to have worked at least in that instance. They did not just talk to the Supreme Leader's office. They did not just talk to uh, members of the National Security Council. They did not just talk to the parliament. They talked to everyone. And they made sure that as they were seeking to tr build trust and create an atmosphere and sell a deal, they sold it to everyone rather than just selling it to one element and leaving it to that element to try to sell it to everyone in Iran who already is very hostile to that element. 
Seven and last, play the long game, patience and perseverance. One of the concerns, particularly when it comes to the US side, is does there exist sufficient political capital to be able to make any talks with Iran su uh, successful, mindful of the fact that no talks with Iran are likely to be particularly short. Well, if there is a real desire to make this successful, then that political capital needs to be created rather than expecting the talks to adjust to an already very hostile landscape, landscape here in Washington. That requires patience and perseverance, um, and uh, that may not have been in large supply uh, when it comes to this issue and many other issues in the Middle East. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Parsi. Um, the last of our speakers before we uh, wrap up and then move into questions is, yes, wait, we still have two, two, two more speakers, but the, the last of our, our panelists then, uh, Dr. Kenneth Katzman. Uh, specialist, uh, as a specialist with the Congressional Research Service, Dr. Kasman serves as senior Middle East analyst for the U.S. Congress, with special emphasis on Iran, Iraq, Persian Gulf states, Afghanistan, and extremist groups operating in the Middle East and South Asia, um, a broad bailiwick. He provides uh, reports and uh, briefings to members of Congress and their staffs on U.S. policy and legislation on these countries and issues. Uh, he's written uh, widely uh, and published widely, including The Warriors of Islam, Iran's Revolutionary Guard, uh, given many presentations uh, to uh, people in government. Uh, I give you Dr. Kenneth Katzman. Thank you very much. Thank you to the Council for inviting me again. Uh, of course, I'm not speaking for the Congressional Research Service today, I'm not speaking for anybody in Congress here in a personal capacity. Uh, since I am not a diplomat, nor have I ever been one, I hope my presentation will be uh, straightforward. Uh, <clears throat> U.S. policy, as I understand it, is to squeeze Iran through sanctions as much as possible until it reaches a new calculation about its nuclear program and the wisdom of pursuing it uh, much further. Uh, U.S. policy, as I understand it, is not intended to change Iran's regime. Uh, however, if that should happen, uh, I don't speak to many people in this town who would be particularly upset about that. Uh, <clears throat> there is no momentum for any type of war or military. I would like to debunk this myth that keeps persisting in this town. Uh, there is no momentum for any war or military action against Iran uh, that I can detect from my standpoint. Uh, everything I hear out of DOD is very cautious, stressing unintended consequences, the difficulty of ensuring a complete or durable result. Uh, there is a clear belief that the dimensions and permutations of any type of military action against Iran are unforeseeable. Such an attack could easily expand into a general war in the Middle East and Persian Gulf, expanding into Iraq, where the U.S. still has 50,000 troops, Afghanistan, U.S. has 104,000 troops, really anywhere in the region involving pro-Iranian parties that uh, Flint talked about. Uh, <clears throat> there is a view that Iran could retaliate, not just immediately, but many, many years thereafter, um, you know, in some sort of an ongoing uh, conflict that persists. Further dampening 
to be more optimistic, further dampening propensity to any conflict is the sense that U.S. policy is beginning to work. There is now a global consensus to isolate Iran economically and diplomatically. The sanctions imposed by the U.S., U.N., E.U., Japan, and South Korea are far stiffer than was expected by anybody and have had the net effect, have the net effect, of separating Iran's energy sector from that of most of the developed world, uh, with the exception possibly of, of ma mainly China, if we put Ar uh, China in that category. Even before these sanctions had begun and were enacted, uh, they had succeeded in scaring out a great many international major companies out of Iran, with more joining uh, almost every day. Uh, the EU, Japanese, and South Korean moves were particularly significant for uh, ending medium and long-term trade financing for Iran. And basically, given that Iran's economy does, you know, flourish or run on import-export business, um, they restrict not only investing in Iran's energy sector, but even the provision of equipments and services to the energy sector. Very sweeping sanctions. The bottom line is, if you are a corporate CEO basically anywhere in the world, almost, that is even relatively aligned with the United States or on good relations with the United States, you are not going to risk your corporate goodwill, your share price, your earning prospects for doing business with Iran when the much huger market, uh, 30 times combined EU, U.S. and EU market combined are 30 times the size of Iran in terms of GDP. In terms of the energy sector, Iran's Revolutionary Guard uh, has announced it's getting out of the South Pars development project. LNG projects are being canceled. Iran is going to pursue a pipeline strategy, which is difficult because it needs the cooperation of neighboring governments. Uh, they've had to, as we've said, uh, convert petrochemical plants to gasoline production to make up for the shortfalls in gasoline supplies. These plants are not efficient, very expensive to convert them, and, uh, and, and it, does, it does hurt. At the same time, there is a growing view that Iran's nuclear program may be encountering major difficulties. This has, in the view of the administration, bought U.S. policy more time for the sanctions to pressure the Iranian leadership into meaningful limits on enrichment program. This has also bought time to keep Israel from taking any precipitous action. There is also a growing belief that military action should be evaluated with respect to how it would affect the domestic opposition green movement. Uh, the movement is far from dead, although it is off the streets. There is a view that inevitably it will be reactivated with any number of triggers possible. Military action would certainly irrevocably set back the, the green movement. Uh, it would cause a loss of support from a whole generation of young Iranians who are looking to the United States to actually integrate to the with the United States uh, when this regime, if and when this regime is, is not there. Uh, these are the same, same Iranians who post on their Facebook pages. I'm in touch with a lot of them on Facebook. Uh, they have cartoons mocking the Supreme Leader, mocking Ahmadinejad. The same Iranians who have defected from the foreign ministry positions in recent weeks and who are actively feeding the West information on Iran's nuclear program. Green movement supporters are entrenched in every nook and cranny of the Islamic Republic, including the state broadcasting apparatus, the police, the Revolutionary Guard, the besiege, etc. I've even had personal, sometimes I get calls from 
Tehran to do press TV, official state broadcasting, you know, and you think it's going to be this deep-voiced cleric, you know, this is Holamo saying, you know, no, it's this young woman named Tanya, you know. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Katzman, we really want you on the show today. And uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of diversity, and uh, I expect there will be more defections in the foreign ministry. Uh, the sanctions have not caused the public, the Iranian public, to rally around the regime, but have instead reinforced the message of the Green Movement. Uh, the message of the Green Movement really is that Iran needs to be integrated into the international community. That's what the Green Movement is really all about. And to the effect that there are more sanctions being added every day, that is reinforcing the, the message, really, of the Green Movement. Still, perfectly understandable, there may not be political change in Iran before Iran becomes or, beco or comes on the brink of becoming a nuclear, a nuclear power. Uh, the sanctions, as effective as they are starting to be, might not ultimately cause Iran's <coughs> leaders to bargain away the capability to eventually pursue a nuclear weapon capability. Uh, this likelihood will, if that happens, increase pressure <coughs> on the United States and on Israeli leaders particularly to, to possibly consider dramatic action to forestall what Israel particularly sees as a non-negotiable and unimaginable <coughs> existential threat. Uh, should that perception take hold, some argue there are dramatic actions that could be considered that do not necessarily involve actual combat. Um, some have discussed the possibility of a blockade, uh, act of hostility to be sure, but not actual combat, although it obviously may lead to that. Others have postulated, you know, trying to set up a United Nations program to have comprehensive inspections uh, of Iran's nuclear program. Others have discussed, you know, ultimatums to Iran coupled with a U.S. allied military buildup around Iran. None of these options are, you know, obviously ideal, uh, but they do demonstrate that the commonly advanced scenario of, of U.S. air campaigns against Iranian nuclear uh, facilities is not the only military option available and, and that there is room for innovation. But as I said, the point of my talk is we're not anywhere close to that. And, and the common perception in official Washington, I would say right now, is that the sanctions uh, are, are starting to really work and, and that that track is what uh, is, is likely to be pursued. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Katzman. Um, from the chair's perspective, under 10 minutes, so thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, our last speaker on the panel is uh, Dr. Tom Mater, who is going to be uh, making uh, comments. He's a, our commentator for the panel uh, to try and tie together some of the issues and bring together some of his own uh, ideas. Uh, Dr. Mater is the executive director of the Middle East Policy Council and ex officio member of its board of directors, taught at Kent State University, University of Southern California, University of California, Riverside, Cornell University. Uh, he's written uh, several important studies, including the three occupied UAE islands, the Tums and Abu Musa, uh, as well as his most recent book, The Global Security Watch, Iran, a Reference Handbook, uh, Dr. Tom Mater. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was asked to be the commentator, so uh, I don't have a prepared speech. I'm actually going to comment on, on these four speeches. 
Um, and I'll do it in order. Um, Dr. Leverett um, uh, is certainly not an advocate of military strikes, but there is one thing he said that I, uh, I would like to uh, take exception to, that Iran is not capable of projecting military power beyond its own borders. Uh, certainly, Arab neighbors of Iran are concerned about Iran's conventional military capabilities. Um, Iran, for example, and I'll just give you a couple of examples, has acquired Chinese-made Pudong-class fast attack naval craft equipped with Chinese-made C-801 and C-802 surface-to-surface, ship-to-surface missiles. Now, they, under certain circumstances, will get out into the Gulf and fire some missiles, and they will do some damage. They don't even have to be too precise to do damage. I once lived in Abu Dhabi, and a missile landing anywhere in Abu Dhabi would disturb me. Um, they also have asymmetrical capabilities uh, that would enable them to engage in uh, well, sabotage of, of oil and gas fields and uh, sabotage of uh, infrastructure inside the GCC states. So I, I differ with Flint to that point, but to me, that reinforces the uh, argument that military strikes are not the way to go, uh, that they are too damaging, uh, that the unintended consequences are too damaging for for uh, Iran's neighbors, and that they would uh, harm our reputation because I think we would be considered complicit in that even if Israel did that. Um, with respect to the question of sanctions, uh, and Tom talked about that, uh, and so did, uh, so did Ken, I think the sanctions have been much more effective than I expected them to be. I see a whole host of countries and companies complying, not only with uh, the Security Council sanctions passed this past summer, but also reordering their, their relations with uh, Iran based on the unilateral sanctions, particularly that the United States has taken. But that's because they seek to avoid the uh, punitive measures that the United States would impose on them after, uh, if they were to continue. President Obama said something very interesting very, very recently. He said that if there were an agreement with Iran about its nuclear programs, that would be the end of sanctions. They wouldn't have to worry about sanctions anymore. I don't understand that at all, because the first executive orders passed after 2001 uh, blacklisted uh, Iraq, Iranian companies thought to be involved in support of terrorism. And uh, for Iran to reach an agreement with us about its nuclear programs, I don't think would be sufficient for the, for the Congress, for example, to cease pressuring the administration for sanctions. The other thing about sanctions I'd like to say is that uh, they, they don't seem to be very smart to me. We were talking about smart sanctions. 
Uh, Ken mentioned that uh, Revolutionary Guard is pulling out of the South Pars gas field. It's a Revolutionary Guard company called Katambal Ambia. Yes, they're pulling out of the South Pars uh, field primarily because they recognize it's too difficult for other companies to be their partners in investing and exploiting that field. All right. But that firm is also one of the biggest engineering and construction firms involved in, in the building of dams and the building of uh, pipelines and the building of highways. And if it's difficult for foreign companies to be involved with that company, it's going to make it more difficult for that company to engage and for Iran to engage in the building of its own infrastructure. And that company employs a lot of private Iranian companies as sub subcontractors. So that's going to hurt a lot of people. And even the, the sanctions to uh, prohibit the sales of refined petroleum products to Iran are going to hurt the people. Uh, Iran has stockpiled refined products. Iran has, as Ken said, started converting petrochemical plants. But uh, that's very expensive, produces high octane gas that isn't very healthy for anybody. It's just going to cause a whole host of problems for everyone, including the people that we support in the green movement. And in fact, they've asked us not to impose more sanctions. Mousavi has said uh, that sanctions are, are blunt, won't work, and will only hurt the Iranian people. The other question I would ask about sanctions is this. What exactly are they intended to achieve? Uh, Flint said that if there is a war, it will be because Iran is enriching uranium, not because anybody finds any proof of Iran diverting, diverting uh, low enriched uranium. So is that really what we need to achieve? Do we really need to achieve uh, Iran giving up the right to enrich uranium? At one point, we were asking for Iran to suspend uranium, to suspend the enrichment of, of uranium. But then someone in the Bush administration said that there was a when hell freezes over clause. <laughs> and that they would, once they suspended enrichment, they would be able to resume it when hell froze over. And they know that. I tend to agree with, with Flint that uh, enrichment of uranium is not something we need to demand the end of, particularly if we can get Iran to agree to abide by the additional protocols to the safeguards agreement to the non-proliferation treaty, which will mean much, much, much more intense inspections and much more knowledge on our part that they are not moving toward nuclear weapon. But now I move to the question of raised by, by uh, Trita, who argued that we should expand our negotiations. And I wholeheartedly agree, to, agree with that. What Iran is seeking is some kind of assurance of its security. I don't think we can give it to them, even if they comply with our desiderata regarding their nuclear program because there are other issues that concern us. We are concerned about, and our Arab friends are concerned about, how they understand their rightful role in the Gulf, and what is, what is their attitude toward the Arab-Israeli peace process. All these things are linked, and we have to be dealing with them all at the same time. It's a mistake, as, as Trita said, to, to treat uh, uh, compliance in the nuclear area, era, area as a precondition for talks in other areas. We ought to be going forward 
in talks on all of the areas of dispute between us because, in particular, I think the Arab-Israeli issue is very important. And the Arabs tell us, and the Arabs complain, we don't listen to them. So here's one area in which I would suggest we listen to them. They complain, or they argue, that, that the continuation of the Arab-Israeli conflict feeds extremism in the region and enables Iran to exploit that extremism and increases Iran's influence in the region. Um, and that if there were a satisfactory settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict, it would reduce Iran's influence and Iran's ability to connect to extremists and exploit that. So I think that that's uh, something that we ought to be working on much more diligent, diligently than we are. And I, I happen to agree with Jazz Freeman that what we're doing is political theater. And that's very dangerous because as long as Iran uh, supports Hezbollah and Hamas and they're not getting any kind of satisfaction whatsoever in Arab-Israeli arena, um, it's going to be very difficult for anybody here to be willing to offer Iran the kinds of security assurances it needs to make agreements with us about their nuclear program and their uh, rightful role in the Gulf, which must respect uh, the uh, security considerations of the GCC states. Now, time is up, so I'm finished. Thank you, Dr. Mater. Thanks to all of our panelists. Um, what uh, we have uh, just over 10 minutes to to get to some of our questions. So uh, what we've decided to do is to uh, allow our speakers, perhaps as uh, if they wanted to respond to Dr. Mater, perhaps uh, as they respond to other questions. Uh, Dr. Anthony and I will will read some of the questions that have been passed up, and hopefully this will allow us to have a, a discussion together. Uh, there are several questions relating to the uh, Turkish and Brazilian. Uh, negotiations um, and, and and what uh, sort of what this means that that we didn't the United States uh, didn't accept this uh, was one question. What does it mean uh, that uh, that what message did we send uh, when we didn't accept uh, their intervention? And secondly, um, the uh, Brazilians and, and and Turks felt initially, according to one question, that they had a green light uh, to do to enter into these negotiations the green light coming from the Obama administration, and what went wrong? And perhaps following on, are there third parties that do, as, as Trita suggested, have the trust of the Iranian government that can still play a constructive role in defusing possible military conflict? So this can go to any number of you, please. Yeah. Can I, um, please? I want to take a crack at that one. I think it's a really important question, um, and I think it, it raises an, an area in which Treat and I may have some different perspectives on this. Um, I think it is really misleading to say that the Obama administration tried engagement with Iran and it failed. Um, I think they never really tried it. And all they've really done is to proceed in a manner that risks giving engagement a bad name. The Turkey-Brazil deal is a very good example of what I am talking about. The TRR deal, when it was first put on the table and codified by, um, by Dr. Bardai, um, the Iranians came back and said, 
we accept the idea of a swap in principle. We want to talk about certain details. It was the U.S., the Obama administration, that defined the Bardai proposal as a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, something Bardai himself says should not have been done. Then, when Turkey and Brazil put themselves forward as potential mediators for a deal along these lines, the administration says, fine, there is a letter, multiple-page letter sent from President Obama to President Lula that lays out the conditions that the U.S. would insist upon in a deal on the TRR, urges Lula and Erdogan to push a deal on these terms as a real opportunity for Iran, and the Turks and Brazilians go off to Tehran, get the deal, and then the administration rejects it. The fact of the matter is, and I'm going to say this very, very bluntly, the President of the United States lied to the President of Brazil in that letter. By the time that letter was sent, they were not prepared to accept the deal. The assumption at the White House was that there was no way the Iranians would ever accept a deal which met these conditions. Once Lula and Erdogan went to Tehran and struck out, they would be able to get Brazil and Turkey to sign on for sanctions in the Security Council, and they'd have a unanimous council. That was the brilliant calculation made at the White House. After the Turks and Brazilians had the temerity to go to Tehran and succeed, the line out of the White House was, oh, well, that letter wasn't really a formal statement of American policy. Excuse me, it's a letter from the President of the United States. I worked at the NSC. I know how agonizing it is to produce a letter from the President of the United States to another head of state or head of government. It is an official statement of U.S. policy. You agonize over every word of it because, precisely because people are going to take it as a statement of official policy. This was a cheap trick by the Obama administration that went bad. And it really raises questions over whether the Obama administration is really prepared to play straight in approaching um, engagement with Iran. Does, does anybody on the panel want to disagree with that? Uh, or Okay, we, we, we have uh, plenty of other questions, uh, but does, does anyone want to make a very quick response? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> put you in that awkward position. Thank you very much. Um, I think the language is a bit intemperate and inflammatory. I've, I have not sat in all the meetings at the highest levels of the National Security Council, but I've sat in a few. We have agonized on how to approach Iran in a way that would be acceptable, in a way that we can build trust, in a way that we can use the collaboration and cooperation of our allies and partners. This has all been done in good faith. Am I going to say we don't ever make a mistake? No. But there is a presumption, I think, in your statement that the other guy is devilishly clever, always honest, and doesn't make a mistake ever. I would back away from that one. That's a dangerous place to be. Uh, for our part, we continue to, uh, to put in place measures that will make the Iranians understand we do want them to, be, to play a, uh, a positive and productive role in the international system. Our measures are, if not completely accurately targeted, they are improving 
they are de demonstrated or they are intended to demonstrate to the regime and its supporters that the, the political calculus they are using is incorrect and should be changed. And frankly, I think most people there understand it. Using my own experience, in a lot of countries around the world, the only place I've ever been for a length of time where the local population believed that the United States was the cause of all their problems was North Korea. Everywhere else, people sort of understand that their own country bears a share in the situation they find themselves in, and perhaps its inability to interact with the United States or other countries. So I would simply leave it at that and uh, uh, ask for a little less inflammatory language on that statement. Um, several short questions here. One is, in the event of a U.S.-Israeli military strike on Iran, what would likely be the public or scenarios of public and private response from um, Iran's seven, eight, eight Arab uh, neighbors? Uh, another one has to do with, is it not hypocritical to uh, talk in terms of attacking Iran, or short of that, sanctioning Iran for its uh, nuclear program uh, while taking no similar action against uh, Israel and its uh, nuclear programs and uh, alleged nuclear uh, weapons there. These are external questions. Could it not be that uh, Iran is in some de facto ways a surrogate for the reemergence of uh, Russia in global politics? Is Iran being used as a proxy to interfere with the West? Where is Russia in this equation there? And lastly, uh, with regard to uh, sanctions again, uh, where is there evidence that economic sanctions are effective in changing behavior of any country? For example, Cuba, for example, North Korea, for example, Iraq prior to war. And what about the statement uh, of many critics of sanctions that uh, the U.S. role in them uh, happens to be one of a toothless foe and a faithless friend? Uh, it seems that all m sanctions to is uh, I'll make one ask if sanctions indeed are effective at changing state behavior. Related to that is the question about non-U.S. firms in Iran. Uh, does support for the sanctions extend to oil field services, such as directional drilling and cementing of well there? And can we not s separate sanctions uh, from other issues of mutual benefit and interest to uh, the United States in Iran, with for example, with regard to Afghanistan or Iraq, or Iran's role in terms of uh, supporting ha Hamas and Hezbollah? Are they not just as serious in their implications? Who would like to take on any of those? <laughs> There's a wide variety. Could we just open it up for you? Take on the sanctions question? A couple of quick comments on the sanctions issue. I think it's a very important question because I think the administration is right in many ways. Uh, they proved many of their critics wrong. The administration was more effective in being able to get other countries to go along with the sanctions and implement them, uh, in spite of the fact that they had two negative votes in the Security Council. Um, but that's essentially to be able to say, well, the tool turned out to be more uh, sharp than what had been expected. but. Whether it actually gets the job done or not still remains to be seen, because we've seen no indication, at least so far, and I don't personally suspect any major indications, in which you will see a significantly different posture by the Iranians on the nuclear issue. 
Part of the reason for that, I think, is not because of a lack of credibility on the U.S. side when it comes to its ability to use sticks. I think the Iranians probably are quite confident in America's ability uh, to put pressure on them. I think it's more about the credibility of the promise of lifting the stick or providing a positive incentive if Iran changes its behavior. That's where I think the confidence is lacking in the sense that whenever there has been um, uh, circumstances in which the Iranians have changed their behavior, at least from their perspective, they don't seem to have um, received uh, a different response from the United States. And this also is quite um, perhaps a pattern. There's a difference between the US sanctions and the sanctions that some of the US allies have imposed. Most of the sanctions by the US allies have been imposed by the executive branch and as a result can be easily put there and relatively easily be taken away. The US sanctions do have a, an executive component, of course, but they also have a perhaps even stronger congressional component. Congress is not particularly astute at lifting sanctions. If I'm not mistaken, sanctions on Iraq still remain, including some of the UN sanctions, seven years after mission accomplished. That's part of the credibility problem when it comes to using these type of sticks and leverages to be able to get what we want. I just wanted to say something. This will be our last uh, comment. I wanted to say something on uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. Is it, uh, I want to take respectful issue with a point that Tom Mater made that you know, if we could get the Arab-Israeli peace process right, it helps to put Iran in a box. Um, I, that way of thinking about Arab-Israeli diplomacy may once have had some validity. Um, it has no validity today. The, the sad fact of the matter, if you want to think of it that way, is that this kind of Cinderella shoe peace process we've got going is not going to produce any kind of agreement between Israel and the Palestinians which could be legitimated on the Palestinian side, which could be sustained on the Palestinian side. The fact of the matter is we cannot achieve the outcomes we say we want to achieve in the Arab-Israeli arena without engaging actors that we refuse to engage, including Hamas, including Hezbollah, and that means the days in which you could try and play Arab-Israeli peace as a card against Iran are gone. You are going to have to have a better relationship with Iran if you want to get Arab-Israeli peace. That's the dynamic today. Well, can I, there's can lots I comment of, on that briefly? I, we're, 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 we're perhaps, okay, one minute perhaps. Well, Dr. I don't Tara, think we're in quite up. as much disagreement as you, you think we might be because I'm not talking about putting Iran in a box. I'm not talking about eliminating Iran's natural, normal influence in the Levant. I'm talking about uh, a situation in which uh, an agreement that they can accept as well. I mean, they specified in the grand bargain in 2003 the kind of Arab-Israeli agreement they were interested in. And it satisfies virtually everyone. And I'm not saying that Iran needs to be in the room with the Israelis and Palestinians. I don't agree with that at all. But the agreement has to satisfy their friends, their clients, in order to satisfy them. And then I think that makes the, the linkages with other issues, such as the Gulf and the nuclear question, easier. Sorry. Okay, with that, thank you very much to uh, each of our panelists. Please join me once again in thanking them before we turn over.